Hopefully you recall the story of Zechariah. Interesting situation that he was in. He was selected by Lot to go into the temple and burn incense. And while he was there, an angel of the Lord came to him and indicated that he would have a son. And his wife, though she was old, similar story that we're a little bit familiar with perhaps in the scriptures as we think of other situations. Nonetheless, Zechariah heard the proclamation of the angel and his expression and response as apparently one of unbelief. He was unable to speak, as you know, for at least the nine months that just before John the Baptist was born. Couldn't talk for nine months. Had a lot of time to take in the truths of God from the people of God, from the Word of God. Imagine that. I expect it. Actually, even the new folks here today, I've talked with every single one of you and I've heard your voice audibly. Everyone in here can talk. I know that personally. But imagine what would happen if you couldn't, if you couldn't speak. Imagine perhaps the way the Lord might. And I'm not proposing to you that you not talk for the next nine months, okay? I'm not proposing that at all. I'm just saying that as we think about Zechariah here and the vessel that he has just become in silence to contemplate the things of God and that he might be used mightily of God to proclaim what certainly was already known, but again, a complete validation of all of the prophets of old. It's just as if those days when the book of the law was discovered or when the promise was made to Abram or any of these other situations, the covenant made with David and so forth. Zechariah is able, with tremendous clarity, used by the Lord to proclaim to us about not only his son, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But not only the fact that Messiah would come, it wasn't news to any in Israel that there was a Messiah coming. But what was really validated by Zechariah was the way in which he would come and the way that Messiah would save. And for some reason, we, we desperately, as God's people, must be reminded of this day by day by day, the way of salvation, the way of redemption, the person of the Messiah, the way that God uses the people. In this complete transition, the paradigm of victory for Israel up to this point, what was it? That was physical warfare. They they look back on the days of David and his mighty men and they regaled in those days and they longed for the days to come again when they would shake loose the power of Rome. And that seemed for many of them to be again the way that God would save his people. But they grossly underestimated and read into the clear prophecy of Scripture that which wasn't there. And so many of them, as you know, missed 
the Messiah. But if they had heard and taken to heart the words of Zechariah, perhaps it would have been different for them. I'd like to draw your attention to the passage of Scripture that was just read in your hearing here and think about a few ideas, and the first of which is simply this idea of clarity. Children, clarity is, is it's about being clear. It's about being able to see and understand. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's to bring understanding where there was misunderstanding. It's as if, you know, when you look at my pond now in my pasture, it's crystal clear. I can see all the way to the bottom. You know, in the summertime, there's no clarity. Obviously, with this last drought, I had mud in my pond. I can't see through mud. There's no clarity there. I can't see. I don't know what's there. But John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus, his father Zechariah, brings to us clarity. And the reality is, is, you know, many of us, just like Job's friends, we knew things. And we know things. It's just that Job's friends knew things that weren't true. And they leaned into those things. And they leaned into things that simply weren't true. And then their lives were dramatically impacted because they, what they thought wasn't actually clarity. They had a perception, but it wasn't a perception of reality. Right? And today, when we use the idea of perception, often the idea is used almost in a deceptive sense. What do you perceive? But Zechariah brings absolute clarity today. And it should result in that same thing that is prophesied in Zephaniah. Shout to the Lord. The Lord Jesus Himself said, You can be silent, and the rocks will cry out. Because the rocks understand the magnificence of this Messiah. May we be much better than rocks. In Zechariah's day, it is true, 4,000 years had passed since God placed Satan on notice that ultimately he shall bruise your head. That is, Satan... And that which he embodies, sin, will be defeated not by an angelic host, but by the offspring of a woman. A particular offspring soon coming in the form of a little baby. What was declared by God had become to those living in the days of John the Baptist and Christ as mere wishes often explained away as hopes for powerful leaders like Samson or Gideon. It seemed that there were only a few that would do this which must be done, and that is to search out a matter. Are we a people who search out a matter? That we will drive, as the second proverb says, that we would mine the truths of God as the miners do for gold. It's not an easy task. Will we search out a matter? 
I'm persuaded during those nine months when Zechariah was awaiting the birth of his only son, John, that he was searching out a matter. And he had something to say when he was able to speak. The wise men in Matthew 2 that we all read together, they searched out a matter. Inclined by God in ways they could understand, they came to the Messiah. The shepherds were informed by the angels about the Savior born in Bethlehem. What did they do? Well, they didn't just sit there. They searched out the matter. They went to Bethlehem to see this great thing. Simeon and Anna met the Lord Jesus in person in the temple at His dedication, having been given insight as they searched the matter in the Scriptures. So this little baby came, was brought by his parents to the temple. And Simeon and Anna, what did they say? They said, this might be Jesus? No, no. This is the Messiah. This is the King of Kings. This is the Savior of the people. This is the Redeemer. They had taken in the truths of God. And they had searched out a matter. King Herod, when he encountered the wise men, then inquired from the religious leaders about the Messiah. Again, in this passage that we read responsively, they found that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem as recorded. Herod had no intention of searching out the matter. Not at all. He was interested only in the continuance of his own rule. He wasn't bothered by the real facts of the case. His perception was only that his legacy was in danger with a rival descendant from David. His rage blinded him from the clarity of true reality. Everybody needs a Savior because of their sinfulness. Herod's perception was short-sighted and self-absorbed. This is one of the greatest dangers of taking in the truths of God. You see, our sin blinds us to the truth and also our inclinations. Unfortunately, sometimes when we read the Bible, we get the wrong idea. Because we carry with us ideas that are unbiblical and we apply those things to the Scriptures. Zechariah understood that. Even those who were trying to be faithful around him, the religious leaders of the day, they misunderstood who Messiah was, what he would look like, where he would come from, what he would do, how he would save, why there was a need for a Savior. In our own day, we could in some ways describe these as difficult times. It might be that we are inclined to think more about other ways of salvation. A better administration in our nation, perhaps. Better terms with the nations around us. People that are more inclined to biblical uprightness. The Lord Jesus addresses those things, of course. But it doesn't get to the heart of the matter. The reality is, is we need a Savior. 
The same way as those who were in Zechariah's day and who walked the earth with the Lord Jesus. A Savior that would separate the penalty of their sins from them such that they can enjoy fellowship with the Creator and delight themselves in that which they were made for in eternity with the Savior. In this passage, Zechariah reveals a divine, majestic, and glorious grasp of reality. Zechariah's first words upon being released from his inability to speak were not a ridiculous justification for the reason he was in the condition in the first place. Not persuaded that Zechariah, when he could finally talk, said, well, you know, I didn't really mean to not believe the angel. I just, you know, I didn't know what to do. He didn't say any of that. Zechariah's perception divinely clarified, and he proclaims what he now understands. Verse 68 of chapter 1 in Luke, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. As I mentioned, Zephaniah chapter 3 says, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. As I would mentioned before, children, the idea here with this clarity, this perception, what is really happening? What is Zechariah being used of the Lord to teach us? We have here clearness and understanding. Finally! We understand what the prophecies mean. That's what Zechariah is saying. And he understands him and applies him. And what does he do? What is his response? It's the same response that David had when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to the holy city. Undignified praise. Shout to the Lord. What else can we do but praise the Lord? That's what Zechariah says, his first words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Visited here, again, this idea isn't a a reminder of the omnipresence of of God. That's not what Zechariah is saying. Oh, God's always here. But this is a unique visitation by way of redemption. This is something different. A mark of His special presence with a view to help. God also visited on other occasions and typically also with a view to help. A foreshadowing of this very event and the last one to follow. The return of the King in all of His glory. This first one in His state of humiliation. And the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ will not be as a humble baby. But it will be as a majestic king. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. There will be no humiliation on that day, not by the Savior, but by all those who haven't been redeemed by the Lamb. Consider the visitation to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abram, to Moses and the prophets, and now here through Zechariah, the visitation, the special occasion when God came down to His people. 
The occasion of this visitation highlights the fact that Israel certainly could have enjoyed uninterrupted fellowship with God, but they didn't. So we should ask ourselves the question, what has interrupted our own fellowship with God? Why the special visitation? Well, they sinned away their relationship with God. It was His creation. When the Lord Jesus, as John chapter 1 records, when He came to Bethlehem, where did He come? He came home. (laughs) He came home. And when His special presence left, many didn't notice. But here he is, the first advent spoken of here by Zechariah. Our relationship with God is not static. God's proximity to us is greatly impacted by our state of sin. How would you like to sense deeply the sweet presence of the Lord? Well, obviously the first thing that must happen is the Lord must redeem you and draw Him to yourself. And secondly, as we are people who grow in the habits of repentance and faith, we will then more and more begin to delight ourselves in this loving Heavenly Father, not only by way of justification, but by way of growing in grace day by day, enjoying His presence, even in the hard, hard times. Israel placed themselves in the situation in which they only had God's presence because of their sins. Sometimes we're like that. Unable to gain attention by doing well, perhaps because we don't do well, we get attention by acting badly. That's the kind of attention Israel had by God. Of course, with the hopes of bringing redemption, and that is his next idea. Again, here in verse 68, he has visited and redeemed his people. The very purpose in the visitation. What is it? Why did God come? Why did the Lord Jesus come? What was, what was John the Baptist's purpose here? To proclaim the Lord Jesus. Now, what was He to do? What was He doing on earth? Well, He came to redeem. That's it. He came as a Redeemer, consistent with our great need. Isn't that amazing? And some of our own perception, some of our understanding, lacks the clarity to recognize our greatest need. Can be nothing other than redemption from our sins made and placed in union with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
not the sort of redemption most are looking for from poverty or political unrest or a bad boss or loneliness. Again, God has certainly addressed all of these things in His Word and has brought rescue in each of these situations. But it's ultimately only a type. A type of the type of redemption that must occur, and that is by way of forgiveness, by way of regeneration, by way of being granted new life in Christ. Now, one of the reasons that we may not think it's such a big deal to be redeemed from our sins and that we think it's okay to focus on other rescues, if you will, other situations. We, we desire to focus our time mostly on worldly expectations and desires and so forth. One of those reasons is because we've really not considered that our sins are that big of a deal. Most of us, when asked, would say, well, you know what, I'm really not that bad of a guy. Do you believe that? Because, you know, hell is filled with people that don't think they're really that bad of a guy. And everybody who thinks they're really not that bad of a guy, they're all going to go to hell too. Because they've misunderestimated their sins. Their, their clarity and their perception is quite muddy. You see, they, they've misunderstood the fact that God is holy. And that what they desperately need is someone to separate them from their sins. And to apply to them not only that forgiveness, but also that righteousness that's not theirs, but it's Christ's. That's what Zechariah is talking about here. He's not drumming around with some idea that he's an okay guy. No, he's saying Messiah is coming to redeem his people from their sins. The concept of Roman rule does not show up in Zechariah's prophecy. Even though the Romans laboriously held it over the heads of the Jews during that time. It wasn't even on the docket of discussion for Zechariah's prophecy. Because he was obviously inclined by the Holy Spirit to drive right to that which they desperately needed. My son, John the Baptist, is the forerunner of the Messiah who is coming, not as a war, warrior like David, but as a Savior that would save people from their sins. We also may consider material blessing far more important than spiritual achievement. Where's your priority? Again, this idea of clarity and perception. What do, your, what do you perceive as that which should be your greatest priority? Some of you, when you speak of coming to Christ, you speak of it in, in, in past tense terms. Oh yeah, I did that. You did what? Salvation isn't so much a thing... It's an experience. 
It's something that God is doing now. The real question we should ask is, am I redeemed now? What is God doing in my life now? Can, can I, like Zechariah, validate with clarity the truthfulness of the fact that I must have a Savior because of my sins? We can't smugly say, oh, I did that. My friend, where's the reality of your walk with Christ is there, a, is there a living union with the Savior? If you did that way back then, then right now you'll have a living union with the Lord Jesus and you'll be growing in faithfulness. And I pray that that would be the case for you. But if not, let today be the day of salvation. The Lord Jesus was not faking it when He said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A genuine offer of salvation in Christ. So genuine as a matter of fact that Zechariah speaks of its completion in the past tense. Verse 69, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. This is the prophetic past tense. Speaking with such certainty of future events it's spoken of in the past. You know those guys. Those guys that are always on the stick. Whatever needs to be done, they do it. And when you say, hey, can you do this? What do they say? Consider it done. That's the prophetic past tense. That's a guy with pluck. It's going to happen. I'll take it from here. That's what the Lord Jesus does. That's what Zechariah is talking about here. Consider it done. He'll raise up a horn of salvation. This is simply the prophetic term for strength. But it's not the kind of strength necessarily that they were looking for. Of course, that would come in the second advent. The salvation. Verse 69, He has raised up a horn, the strength of salvation for us. The errand upon which the Lord Jesus has been sent by the Father in heaven is nothing less than salvation. Why are you here? To redeem the people of God. I'm here for salvation. In the house of the servant of David, the line of David and the promises of redemption seem to have been forgotten. Such as when an old truth seems sort of like an urban legend or a fairy tale. Again, as I mentioned, Anna and Simeon hadn't forgotten. The wise men hadn't forgotten. Genesis 3.15 indicates the Savior would be in human flesh, the seed of a woman. Not only do we have prophecy fulfilled here in verse 69, but also the promise kept in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. A promise kept. The greatest asset of the Holy Scriptures is in its sweet promises of salvation, culminating in this incarnation and in his second coming. What Zechariah is saying, he's saying, look, God told us this. 
We know this. We know this to be true. There's nothing new here. But today is the day. John, my son, will be the forerunner of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is all coming to fruition. That's what Zechariah is saying here. In verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Yes, from those who hate God and His people. What does the Bible say about those who make a mockery of the followers of Christ? Well, the 23rd Psalm indicates that there will be vindication on that day. Are you worried about being mocked for being a follower of God? Are you worried about people that would poke fun at you for worshiping the Lord on His day? Even in the days of David used by God to pen the 23rd Psalm, he said, in the presence of my enemies, I shall be vindicated. God's people, those who trusted in Christ, were certainly singled out, even in Jerusalem, during His earthly ministry. Verse 72 Again, the purpose to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. The promise kept true mercy, not receiving the wrath of God for our sins that we deserve. This covenant, a blessing and redemption. Grace receiving that which we don't deserve. What is mercy? What is it? Spoken of here by Zechariah. What is it? We receive mercy. What is mercy? It's not getting that wicked thing that we deserve. I say wicked, not getting that that just recompense for our sins. That's mercy. And grace is getting that thing which we don't deserve. The goodness of God. Spoken of here. Verse 73, is God a God of His Word? Oh, yes, He is. Verse 73, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear. Now, we know why the Lord Jesus came, right? It says it right here. He came for redemption. And it wasn't about Roman rule. He came for salvation. He came to bring to us the amends for our sinfulness, right? Oh, that's good. And what's the purpose of God's people here? Well, it says it right here in verse 74, that we... Who's the we here? That we, might serve Him without fear. How how do you like that? You ever have this little nagging thing in the back of your mind when you lean into serving Christ or being faithful to others? You ever have that sort of check, if you will? This is like the, what was told to Joshua 
in Joshua chapter 1. He says, be strong and courageous. You got hard things in front of you, but fear not. With cheer and buoyancy, you can go forward in faithfulness. Serve Him without fear. And we can ask the same question. What can man do to me? We have a Savior in Christ. Our destiny is fixed in heaven. As God's redeemed, we can serve Him without fear. Saved to serve. The incarnation was about being saved to serve. A rescue from the midst of those who hate God. Now able to serve and without fear of God's wrath or the wrath of our enemies. There's something about the security of being in Christ that should draw us into a fearless going forward. Not unlike warfare. If you were in a physical battle and you were promised that nothing could impact you as you went on to serve those around you, what would you do? How would you think of that? That's the idea being set forward here. With cheerfulness and buoyancy and faithfulness, earnestness, a genuine going forward, God says, yes, you can serve without fear. It's why I've saved you. Verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days, the salvation is a restoration to the favor of God, and this salvation qualifies us actually to serve Him. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins. Not only the prophecy fulfilled, not only the promise kept, but here we have the pardon obtained in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins. To give knowledge of salvation. This is one of the things we're learning in our theology study on Thursdays. The wonderful works of God. Salvation is certainly a work of God. But the question here for us is, do you have the true knowledge of the forgiveness of your sins? What would that be? The people that you pass on the street each day may profess that they have some knowledge of the forgiveness of God's sins. But the question is, do they have the experiential knowledge of God's sins such that they are forgiven in Christ? And can you help them understand that? That God has come and He has brought redemption 
Lastly, perception clarified here in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the pathway of peace. Without Christ, where were you? Without the forgiveness of our sins, where were you? Perhaps for some of you I could say, where are you? In the present tense. You might say, oh, well, it's not so bad here. I have some clarity, a little light. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in John 1 and Zechariah repeats it here in Luke chapter 2 that there was no light there. No, no, no. No, the Messiah comes for a people that are in darkness. And without Christ, we're in darkness. That's the, that's the true perception of what is actually reality. All of us have thought a certain that we knew things that were absolutely wrong. And Zechariah is saying here, the same as it said in John chapter 1, the reality of life without Christ is darkness, darkness, darkness. And He alone is the light. You want light? There's one source. One source of light. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to Him we must go. And that's good because that's why He came. To save us from our sins. Let us pray.